Good morning, COV. Thank you for joining us as we continue our study of the book of Genesis called In the Beginning, Jesus. I'm pretty excited today, and it's kind of weird to be excited because today we're going to talk about sin. Yay? But here's the thing. The passage that we're going to study today is something that I feel as a church is really, really important for us to understand the fall of mankind where Adam and Eve first sinned. Today, we're covering something that I think is possibly the most important passage in all of Scripture because you know why? I love the gospel. You know I love the gospel of grace, the finished work of Jesus. And you know how much I love to tell us that the gospel isn't about us, it's about Jesus and God's redemptive plan to reconcile sinners like us to him. But the good news? It's accentuated when we acknowledge just how bad the bad news is. The bad news is this. We are sinners, all of us, and we are unable to work our way to God. That's the bad news. It gets pretty wicked when we start to unravel all that we do both against God and for ourselves. But God, God is the hero and the answer to our problem. Today, we will unpack the origin of the bad news, what is known as the fall, and where our relationship with God was first broken and a chasm between us and him began. Let's begin where we left off last week. We're going to start at the beginning of chapter 3 in verse 1. Here's what it says. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? This is a bit abrupt. Chapter 2 ends with the first marriage being wonderful and shameless. Intimacy and connection abounded, and now we're talking about a snake. Listen, I'm not a fan of Satan. I don't think any of us should be, but there are times I tend to not give him credit where he deserves it. And I know that that may be wrong because pretending like he doesn't exist, that's a really terrible trick that the devil plays. But also giving him credit for any and every inconvenience is pretty off as well. Satan is not God's equal. So it's hard to treat him like he's everywhere at all times, knowing all things. But what we do know is that he is the prince of the kingdom of the air. As Paul says in Ephesians, and he does roar around like a lion looking for someone to devour, as Peter says in 1 Peter. But he also can do very little without God allowing him to do so. And what we see is, in that simple truth, is that God redeems even the bad. God isn't the author of evil, but he can absolutely bend evil to fulfill the good purposes of God. So even though today's passage is tragic, it doesn't mean that God is without a plan. In fact, his plan is the most beautiful story of love that the world will ever know. So the serpent, the snake that we know is the manifestation of this fallen angel, Satan. He is the most crafty, the most dastardly of all God's creation, So did God create evil? No, I don't think he did. I think he created the opportunity for lack of good. What is darkness? It's simply the absence of light and sin is the absence of good. And as soon as God gave the opportunity to choose to obey or disobey him, mankind under the influence of this crafty serpent, we chose the opposite of God's ideal. That may not make sin sound as disgusting as it is in reality, but it may make you realize that you are a sinner that you, because you don't choose God's ideal. If we stop thinking about the big sins like murder and treason and start to think about the fact that we look, lack good in our choices, 
Because even when we do the right thing, it might be for the wrong reasons. And that is the absence of good, and it isn't God's ideal. So what does the serpent do? He tempts Eve to question God's word. Did God really say that you mustn't eat from any tree in the garden? Isn't this what happens to us? We question, did God really say what we know that he actually said in his word? But the reality is Satan didn't quote God, he misquoted God, and this is something that he and we have been doing ever since. There are more times than not that we think God said something because we heard someone else say it, but we haven't gone to the source, we haven't gone to God's word to see what God actually communicated. Verse 2, the woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the fruit from the trees in the garden. Eve pointed out the fact that God had given provision and had and hadn't done or said what Satan was quoting that God had said. Verse 3, But God did say, You must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. All right, there's some problems with what Eve's response is, one which is very obvious. So look back with me at Genesis chapter 2. We'll start in verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, speaking to Adam, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden. But you must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. So reading what God said to Adam, it seems as if either Adam added to the law of God by suggesting to Eve that she also should not touch the tree of knowledge. If you think about it, it's decent advice. If you don't touch it, you can't eat from it, right? Well, we don't know if that is how Adam relayed the commandment to Eve or if Eve added that as an exaggeration while she spoke with the serpent. Oh, and by the way, speaking with a serpent, that's not normal, right? I just want to acknowledge that this isn't something we are used to as mankind either. Now, I am of the camp that thinks that Adam added this extra law about not touching the tree to attempt to make sure that Eve didn't get near the tree to then fail. But I'd like to state that I actually think a good case can be made that Adam's adding to the law or man-made religion was the first sin. As instead of taking God at his word, Adam felt as if adding to it made it a more complete law that would keep he or Eve from disobedience. I could go on and on about this, which I will try not to, but what type of rules do you and I add to God's law now? I think the law in which God gave us was not only for our good so we wouldn't get dead, but also so we could realize that we cannot do this on our own. We need a better Adam. We need a real savior. We need someone who can stand in the gap between us and God because based on our own merit, we have no shot. Like attempting to jump across the Grand Canyon, we are hopeless. But God sends his son and we have access to God through God because God is good. So you have Eve misquoting God for either her misunderstanding or Adam's self-imposed religion that was handed to her. And not only that, she doesn't actually call the tree the tree of knowledge of good and evil, but the tree in the middle of the garden, which some commentators point out may mean that Eve believes that God's commands are up to human modification. I'm not saying that that's what this means, but I'll tell you what, we as mankind do this a lot by really sounding more like the serpent than we realize. It's almost as if we have an inner voice that tells us internally, did God really say that? When we come to a crossroads of knowing we can make a decision to obey God at his word or make an excuse to disobey. 
You and I, in our sin nature, have this underlying issue of thinking that God is holding out on us when something looks pleasing or fun, but we know God's commands are contrary to that. Verse 4, you will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. Here the serpent directly contradicts what God has said with no evidence other than his word against God's, which sometimes seems like enough, but it really isn't to contradict God in his word. Verse 5, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So Satan contradicts God and then takes God's warning and explains how God was holding out on them by keeping this from them. That the fruit of the tree is something worth obtaining and that they can be like God if they too know what God knows. Even though both Adam and Eve were made in God's image and were already like God, which Satan is now trying to get them to double down on. And being made in the image of God, they were granted authority and responsibility over all the beasts of the field. Guess what? Including the serpent. So by not trusting God's design or stewarding the responsibility they have over these beasts and animals, and instead creating a coop by revolting with the animals, this isn't just disobedience, this is treason against God. Those who were entrusted to govern the earth on God's behalf instead rebel against their divine king and obey one of his creatures. Some will argue that Satan was right, that they won't surely die. But death was not a thing until sin entered into the picture. Adam may have lived into his 900s, but he and Eve would be kicked out of Eden, and death would now be the sentence to every person who was ever born, physically and spiritually, until Jesus defeated death by rising from the dead. Verse 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some of it and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. God has given them all of the trees and the fruit from the entire garden but one tree. And what does the serpent do? He convinces them that that tree God told them not to eat from was the most desirable. Even though all the trees and their fruit were good for food and pleasing to the eye. I think the way that the enemy persuaded her was not only to convince her that God was holding out on them, but to make her discontent with all that the Lord had provided them. Don't we do this ourselves, church? Isn't this how every material possession we possess becomes? Don't we want what we don't have? Don't we yearn and obsess about the next thing? Isn't it ridiculous how quick we covet something and when it becomes ours, then we get sick of it and want to move on to the next thing? This is what happened to mankind when Eve and Adam ate from that tree. We became eternally unsatisfied with anything this world has to offer. But instead of trusting God at his word, We want to constantly find something of creation to fulfill the God-sized hole in our lives. And it never fits. It never satisfies. It never does the trick because there is nothing created that will fulfill you and I. Only a personal and experiential relationship with God will ever satisfy. But even then, even after bowing a knee, turning from sin, turning to Christ, being gifted salvation through the finished work of Christ's life, his death and his resurrection, even after being gifted God's Holy Spirit, we still yearn for things that are of this world. Even if our identity is placed in God, 
who is not of this world. In fact, Paul, the apostle, writes to the church in Rome, and here's what he says, and it's going to feel a little redundant, but I, I want you to just hear the gist of what he's describing. He says this regarding sin in Romans 7. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. Verse 16, and if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. Verse 17, as it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. Now, that may sound a little bit like a riddle, but this is reading my mind every time I look back at a decision where I went against God's commands and word and wonder what the heck I was doing. It reads so redundantly, and sadly, my sin is so redundant, as the proverb says in Proverbs 26, verse 11, as a dog returns to its vomit, so fools repeat their folly. So the woman saw that it was good and pleasing to the eye, that this fruit was that, and she partook. And then what does she do? Okay, disclaimer, this may be the only place in scripture where every time I read it, I physically get angry. When Christ was put on the cross, I cry. Not just because it's so unfair, but because I know that he did it for you and I. But when Moses writes that Eve ate and then gave some to her husband that was standing next to her, I get pretty angry and here's why. God had entrusted so much to Adam, including the care for his wife. And not only does he allow the serpent to mislead Eve, but he then partakes with her like a moron. The argument can be made that he didn't know Eve was talking to the serpent because you'd think that he would correct her or the serpent when they misspoke about God and what God actually said that Adam would then correct the serpent. But not, nonetheless, Genesis is clear when it says that Eve partook and then handed some to Adam who was standing right there with her. Adam's passivity drives me nuts. Now listen, the opposite of passivity is not controlling or dictatorship or anything like that. The opposite of passivity is responsibility. And he was handed responsibility, which he absolutely abdicated any and all of that to be a protector, to be a provider. Instead, he disobeyed God while probably adding to God's commands, and he didn't protect Eve from this crafty serpent. Instead, he jumped right in and was persuaded to sin alongside her. Now, I don't know about you, but if a snake came anywhere near my wife or family, I'd be stepping on its head. Not saying it's the smartest thing to do, but my family doesn't get to be put into danger while I'm around. And Adam just chose to go along with what was happening. Why? Probably because he thought that God was holding out on him or that he wanted to be even more like God or, check it, pride. I don't know. What I do know is that unfortunately, since birth, we all inherit Adam's sin. Romans 5 verse 12 Therefore, just as sin entered into the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way, death came to all people because all sinned. So mankind's connection was broken with God. 
Our closeness and our ability to be in his presence was broken. God made two people so far, and they were two for two when it came to sinning. But that's the bad news, church. There's good news that we will never stop preaching. There is hope that can be looked upon. Romans 6, verse 23, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Can I get a hallelujah? Not only can none of us ever outgive God, but God did for us what we were unable to do for ourselves. Jesus lived perfectly, he died sacrificially, and he rose victoriously. Also, we could have our relationship be restored with God after the fall. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's see the aftermath of sin entering into the picture. Here's what it says, verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. The couples, the, this couple experienced roughly what the enemy claimed would happen, transformation, just not the one that they had hoped for. They no longer would live in harmony with God, and for the first time ever in history, mankind created in God's image was now exposed, and there was no longer trust with God who up until this point saw them naked and there was no worry of being exposed because of their perfect relationship with God. But now all of that has completely changed because of sin. Now they have realized that they are naked, that they are exposed, that they are vulnerable, and their innocence has been lost. They will never ever be restored within their own strength. This break in relationship is the most tragic thing about our sin. But unfortunately, like Adam and Eve, we tend to not realize the significance until we're shut out of the garden. Verse 8, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. I don't know what God, I don't know what it's like for God to be walking in the garden. I don't know what it sounds like, but it's obvious that Adam and Eve no longer felt uh, the, the Jewish word for peace, shalom, with God because their peace had been broken, because they no longer believed God at his word. Verse 9, but the Lord God called to the man, where are you? Now, don't get this twisted. It's not as if he was like, hey, I can't find you, but he gave them an opportunity to show themselves. God doesn't ask questions out of ignorance. He asks questions to expose something in the hearer's heart. And then verse 10, he answered, Adam answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Well, it's not as if God didn't know what had happened, but Adam admits that he was afraid, so he hid. Verse 11, and he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? God said. Again, God knows the answer, but wants Adam to admit where he's failed. Verse 12, The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Okay, this is my least favorite response in all of scripture. This is worse than Abram calling Sarah his sister. Adam doesn't own up, but not only does he throw Eve under the bus, but he says, the woman you put here with me. Wow. So Adam blames Eve and Adam inadvertently blames God and takes no responsibility for his actions at all. See, this is what depraved individuals do. They can't at all take credit or own up to the mistakes that they've made. And instead of confessing and repenting, they play the blame game to justify ourselves. Well, trust me, this didn't work then and it doesn't work now. Pride 
it keeps us from God. It keeps us from owning up to our mistakes. It keeps us from bowing a knee. There are a lot of arguments for what the first sin was, but I think pride is involved in every single theory of what, what the first sin is. In Proverbs 16, verse 18, in the Good News translation, it says it this way, pride leads to destruction and arrogance to downfall. And I don't know if I've said this publicly, but when some of you met me, I was an itinerant speaker. I would travel from church to church, conference to conference, colleges to colleges, corporations to corporations. That was a lot of C's. And I would share my testimony. I would do trainings on evangelism and I would preach sermons. And as I've said before, when I would make much of Jesus, people would make much of me. And I can confess this now to you as part of the church that God has entrusted me to help lead and serve. After being out of that specific world for a while, I can confess that I really liked it. I really enjoyed blowing in, blowing up, and blowing out. I enjoyed the attention and the praise that I would receive for coming and saying things in a way that people hadn't heard them before. But something happened to me a few years back. When I was an interim pastor at a church down the street, I started to have affection for a people. I started to want to not just preach at them, but walk alongside them through the good and the bad that this life brings. My speaking career, I guess you could call it, introduced me to some wonderful people, many who are part of Church of the Valley today. But that season of life, when I think back to it, it actually really bums me out because I see the pride that I had. And unfortunately, the pride I still have that I have to fight against to, to this day. Because I often think too highly of myself and not highly enough about my God. Church, let me tell you something that many of you may not believe, but pride is cancer to your spiritual life. Pride will replicate itself and make it so you say stupid things to justify yourself it will make you believe that this own reality you've made up in your mind that you're the star of the show. Pride makes it so we don't reflect Christ because we're too busy reflecting our own glory. Pride will make you blame everyone else and never own up to your own mistakes. But you know what's beautiful about the gospel of grace and Jesus's finished work? You know it. Say it with me. The gospel is not about you. And if it's not about you, it's not about how good you are or how perfect you attempt to portray yourself. There's no reason to try to make yourself seem better because Christ is better. Then you can absolutely, if Christ, if the gospel, if you've been saved by him, you absolutely can own your mistakes. Because like every human ever, other than Christ, we make mistakes, we sin, we transgress, we go against God's ideal, and we have this gracious and perfect God who substituted his perfect life for our broken life. And when we humble ourselves, we are grafted in with Jesus Christ. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, Paul writes this and says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Preach it, Paul. Christians, you no longer have to prove yourselves or attempt to save yourself or to justify yourself. Lay that down and embrace the beauty of God doing it all. Genesis 3, verse 13, Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. 
And then we have Eve, who also, like Adam, blames someone else. She blames the serpent. She blames the devil. Could it be Satan? I mean, he did tempt her, but her and Adam did not resist. They did not defend what their God had told them. They just bought into the lie that Satan told them. There is this balance between blaming Satan for everything and never giving him credit. Satan may not be under your bed, but our sin nature will constantly, like Adam and Eve, point to pride and blame of others, all in Satan's plan to wound those of us who follow and declare Jesus as our Lord. But here's my hope for each one of us, as we have studied this passage, that honestly, a lot of the world mocks because they go, there was a talking snake, there's eating fruit from a tree. It all sounds ludicrous. But what we don't understand is that this was the beginning of our, the human fallen nature that each one of us inherit and live in until, like Jesus told Nicodemus, until we're born again. Church, please don't hear this message and think that you have to try harder to sin less. Hear this message and give praise to God that even though we are inherently evil, let me let that sit for a second. We're inherently evil. God made a way in his own son, the way we could have our relationship with God be restored through the sacrifice of Jesus, through the resurrection of Jesus, and through the gift of God in faith to trust, obey, and follow this Jesus, all empowered by the Holy Spirit so we do not have to be Adam or Eve, but we can be God's chosen people, justified by grace sanctified through trial, and glorified in the name of Jesus for eternity. Amen. Now that's the end of the message. I want to encourage you like we do every week to jump on the takeaway call. We do the takeaway call with the hope that you will come see other people and share what God's stirring in you from what we've taught today. And we also want to encourage you that if you're part of the Church of the Valley, we do offerings every single week, mostly because we know that it is an opportunity for God's people to worship. And so we want to encourage you that if Church of the Valley is your home, to give. And if you are uh, at the watch party, then you can give by putting a check in the box. If you are uh, watching this at home, you can mail a check to the church property, or you can go online and give that way if you choose to also. I'm going to pray for us. I'm grateful for each one of you that you're a part of God's kingdom and his work at Church of the Valley. And so I pray as you've confessed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that you would be, you'd be experiencing more and more of who he is in this season. And if you're yet to bow a knee, if you're yet to confess Christ as Lord, talk to one of the people that you know, email me, talk to someone within the congregation who you know trusts and follows Jesus because we would love to introduce you to Jesus Christ who did for you and I what we could not do for ourselves, who lived the perfect life we couldn't live, died the death we should have died, and he physically rose from the dead so that we could have life. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for what you're doing in our in our. Uh, experience of going through Genesis in particular. I thank you that we find Jesus throughout the entire text. And Lord, I thank you that the bad news is not where it ends, but there is good news that we can know and have a relationship with Jesus and he's made a way so our relationship with you, God, can be restored. Father, I pray that you would take whatever the offering is from your people and you would use it to multiply and make disciples. 
that more men, women, and children would fall in love with you, Jesus, and they would trust and follow you every day of their life. Lord, thank you that even though we fail, you see Jesus. And we thank you that because of what Jesus has accomplished on our behalf, we can have a right relationship with you. God, would you give us the faith to lay down our pride and bow down and trust you? Lord, may you be praised. In Jesus' name, amen.